This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Charles Paul Weisinger. My home address is 603 Meachaw, Cape Girardeau, Missouri. I'm currently serving a three-year sentence for burglary and stealing at the Central Missouri Correctional Center outside Jefferson City. I've known Joshua Keezer for about a year and a half. On either the 24th or 25th of January, 1993, I was arrested and taken to the Cape Girardeau County Jailhouse in Jackson, Missouri. In February or March of 1993, I talked to Sean Mangus and Isaac Johnson, who were also housed in the Cape Girardeau County Jailhouse. I told Sean I was facing a 10-year sentence as a prior persistent offender. Sean told me he knew a way out I could do it better for myself. Sean told me he had already talked to the police, telling them that Joshua Keezer had told them he'd killed a girl in Benton. Sean said he would get a reduced sentence for saying this. Sean and me began talking together with him telling me what to say to the police so our stories would be consistent. Sean told me that he had told the police that early in January of 1993 that several people who were at Stacy Reed's apartment in Cape Girardeau the people there included myself, Sean, and Josh Keezer. Sean said to tell the police that on that January evening, Sean, Josh, and I had a conversation in the bedroom of Stacy's apartment. And during this conversation, Joshua told both Sean and I that Josh had killed the girl in Benton. Joshua Keezer never said this. He's never said that he killed the girl in Benton. Even though it was a complete lie, elaborately worked up by Sean, I decided to take Sean's story and tell it to police to see if I could also work out a deal on my sentencing. Shortly after I talked to Sean Mangus about setting Keezer up with the Benton murder thing, I talked to a Missouri Highway Patrolman and a sandy blonde-haired female deputy from the Scott County Sheriff's Department. I told the two that I might be able to help them out with the Benton, Illinois murder. The two police acted like they didn't want to talk to me yet. I then talked to Sean Mangus and discussed that this murder happened in Benton, Missouri, not Benton, Illinois. Sean began to fill me in on what to say. I began to get the story, the lie, straight. Sean, myself, and Steve Graw also heard that there would be a reward to anyone helping solve the Benton murder case. I heard about the reward from the sandy blonde female deputy from Scott County, Sheriff Bill Farrell of Scott County, Highway Patrolman Wyndham, and another patrolman. To get the reward, Sean, Steve, and I planned to use Isaac Johnson as a go-between between us and the authorities. Sean and myself were going to keep lying by saying Josh told us he'd killed a girl in Benton, and Steve was going to say that he saw Josh with a three eighty handgun. Later, Steve told me he did, in fact, tell police he saw Josh with a three eighty. Two or three weeks after I told the first highway patrolman and the woman deputy that I might be able to help him out, Missouri Highway Patrolman Don Wyndham picked me up at the Cape Girardeau County Jailhouse and drove me to Benton, Missouri to meet with him and Scott County Sheriff Bill Farrell. On the way to Benton, Wyndham kept telling me how bad it was to commit murder. I met with Wyndham and Sheriff Farrell in Farrell's office. At the beginning of the conversation, Wyndham told me that he was good friends with Morley Swingle, 
and although he couldn't guarantee anything that he would talk to Swingle for me and that he thought Swingle would give me a better deal on my criminal charges in Cape County. Sheriff Farrell also told me that he would talk to Swingle for me and that he would do his best to help me out. After these promises, they began asking me about the conversation, the one that never happened between Joshua Keezer, Sean Mangus, and myself in the bedroom of Stacy Reed's apartment in Cape Girardeau early January 1993. I tried to remember all the things Sean had told me to say, but I still messed up and wasn't consistent on parts of the false story. Wyndham and Farrell had a stack of papers which they left in my view that had Sean's name and the statements that he had made to them about Joshua. I got the feeling they just wanted me to say that either Josh did it or that he had told me he had did it. I don't think either Wyndham or Farrell cared if I told them the truth or not. They just wanted my statement to match up with Sean's. So I did my best to tell them what they wanted to hear even though it wasn't true. While talking to Farrell and Wyndham about the fictitious discussions with Joshua, if I messed up a detail of the story, Farrell and Wyndham would prompt me or lead me with their notes from Sean Mangus. I told Farrell and Wyndham that Joshua told me and Sean that he had shot a girl in Benton, Missouri, not Illinois, and that Josh told Sean and I this while we were in the bedroom of Stacy Reed's Cape Girardeau apartment in early January 1993. I also told Farrell and Wyndham that I had previously seen Josh Keezer with either a 9mm or a 380 handgun. Josh Keezer never told Sean Mangus and I that Josh killed a girl anywhere. I also have never seen Joshua Keezer with any kind of handgun. These stories about Joshua that I told police, Wyndham and Farrell, were completely false. I only did it because I thought they would help me with my criminal charges and maybe give me a reward. I also know that anything Steve Graw and Sean Mangus said to the police about Joshua Keezer and killing a girl in Benton is a lie. They only said what they did about Josh to get a reduced sentence or a reward. I have no reason to suspect Josh Keezer of killing a girl in Benton. I did not even know that a girl in Benton was murdered until I was arrested on the 24th or 25th of January 1993 when Sean Mangus told me. I've never been in the bedroom of Stacy Reed's Spanish Street, Morgan Oak Street apartment in Cape Girardeau with only Josh Keezer and Sean Mangus. Before I talked with Patrolman Wyndham and Sheriff Farrell, Sutherland, the prosecutor from Cape County, insisted I wasn't going to get a deal on my charges for burglary and stealing. I talked to Highway Patrolman Wyndham a few days before my sentencing on my Cape County charges. Wyndham told me that I had seen what he'd gotten done for Sean and that he could probably do the same for me. He told me he'd already talked to Morley Swingle once for Sean and I and that he was going to talk to Swingle again for both Steve Graw and myself. At the day of my sentencing, early in May 1993, Morley Swingle showed up and talked to my lawyer, Marie Murphy, from Farmington, Missouri, and I was given a three-year sentence instead of ten as a prior and persistent offender. My lawyer told me I must have given up some good information to get such a good deal. That statement was written by Josh Keezer's attorney, David Rosner. It was signed by Charles P. Weisinger and Rosner as well. Every chicken scratch edit was initialed by Weisinger. The document was also witnessed and signed by a prison guard. It's not uncommon in wrongful convictions for jailhouse informants to give up bad information to leverage deals for less prison time. It's not uncommon in exonerations for those same snitches to come forward years, even decades later, saying they made up a story or were mistaken. 
But this story about Michelle Lawless and Josh Keezer is not a common story, even for exonerations. The statement that you just heard came on June 28, 1993. That was one year before Josh Keezer was sentenced to 60 years in prison. Long before Josh Keezer even stepped into a courtroom, not one, but two informants actually tried to do the right thing. Scott County and the state of Missouri would have none of it. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. They never spoke to any of these people or organizations or sources. They never investigated me. They merely put me on trial and told the jury they had. Never happened. Now, who does that out of good conscience? I went to seventh grade and then, you know, eighth grade, you know, to the junior high in Cape. And then after that, we moved to Jackson and I went to ninth grade in Jackson. And that's where, you know, everything really started to fall apart uh, in Jackson. In Jackson, uh, my mother, again, wanted a new start. And Jackson was smaller or is smaller than Cape Girada. Um, at that point, it was a lot smaller. Mm-hmm. And she she thought it would be a good idea for me to get another new start, uh, you know, because we had eventually moved into um, another place in the ghetto in Cape Girada. She believed, and rightly so, that an apartment in Jackson was better than living in the ghetto in Cape. So we moved there, and, you know, I, I, I met friends. I got to know people. Uh, and started uh, you know, participating in athletics, and I uh, got involved in um, USA wrestling when I was there. And I turned sixteen in Jackson, but there there came a time, and it was right. It was it was it was while I was turning. It was right around me turning teen that everything uh, fell apart. My mother struggled. Uh, her entire adult life with alcoholism and with some drug abuse, but primarily alcoholism. And by drug abuse, I think it was just primarily marijuana. But um, but really, alcoholism was her Achilles heel, and it wasn't easy for her to quit because she was a bartender. She wanted to get better, so she went to rehab. And in the process of her being in rehab, she sent me to live with someone in Cape Girada, but I was still going to school in Jackson. And uh, so I went to live with this person. But as a result of living with this person, this person had children of their own and wasn't very responsible, unfortunately. And uh, I was, you know, from time to time staying with her, but then staying overnight in my apartment that I lived with my mother. At the, you know, when, when we lived together in Jackson, we tried to go to school in the morning and it often was late. It, it created the appearance of delinquency with some of the teachers in Jackson at the time. And I, I remember one morning I went, I went in and I was late. I got told 
to immediately go to the principal's office. And when I went to the principal's office, you know, it was a pretty tense conversation. And I was trying to explain to them that I'm doing the best that I can. And, you know, my mother's in rehab. I'm doing the best I can. Uh, and the principal didn't want to hear anything. He, he, he showed no compassion. He didn't care about any of this. And he told me that I had one of two choices that I can either quit or that he would kick me out. And I had good grades and I, I didn't, I didn't want to quit. I wasn't going to quit quitting. It isn't in me. It wasn't in me. Quitting has never been in me. I wasn't raised to quit. So when he gave me this ultimatum, it, it, I remember just sitting there and thinking, no, I'm not quitting. I'm not going to end up under a bridge a year from now. That's not going to be me. I'm not going to end up homeless under a bridge. And I, I can't remember why I said that, but that was just, that was what came out. He said, fine. And, and, he, and, he, and he kicked me out, but he wrote down that I quit. It, it immediately gave me the, um, the appearance of just being a loser, of being a quitter, of, you know, just giving up on life. I remember, like, my mother, when she got out of rehab, she was irate. She was upset. It pretty much ruined her rehabilitation because she went in uh, to address her issues and got out, and her son has all these issues that the places she had moved him to to hope to get a brand new start for him had it had done the opposite. So I, I do remember we even called the cops um, and tried to address it. And there was nothing that, that they said there was nothing they can do. I attempted to go to GED. My mom said, well, you're smart. Uh, learning is easy for you. So why don't we just, you know, try GED with you? So uh, here I am, 16 years old, and I'm trying to uh, get my GED. And I remember I, I took my GED test, and it didn't, you know, the, the entrance exam. Mm -hmm. It didn't take me long. Like, I, 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 I breezed right through it. I remember the, um, the teacher setting me to the side and asking me if I was bored with school. Not answer the question, but I was like, well, you know, um, I don't know about board, but you know, I mean, it's just, it is what it is. I said something like that. And she said that she believes I've, I've been bored, that it's possible that that was the um, impetus for me showing up to school late and maybe not showing the effort that I could have, even though I was making good grades. Because I, I guess when I did the test, uh, it gave an indication of my IQ and that I, I would, apparently I was very smart. So that didn't help me. <laughs> that just made me be more bored. I was like, well, what's the point then if I'm already smart? <laughs> so um, I didn't, you know, I didn't go back. I think I went like one or two more times, but I stopped. And my mom, she was really um, disheartened now. She didn't know what to do next. So, you know, after some unfortunate events, she called my father and she 
So Charlie, <laughs> it's time for you to be a dad. Come get your boy. He needs his father. So he did. And that's when I moved to Kankakee. The Scott County Sheriff's Department got word from the Cape Girardeau County Sheriff's Department on February 27, 1993, that an inmate wanted to talk to them. So here's the nuts and bolts of what happened. A prison inmate who knew Josh Keezer, Sean Mangus, had come forward saying he knew something about the murdered girl in Benton. Wyndham and Deputy Shivitz interviewed him. The next day, they interviewed him again, this time on video. He was the only one of the snitches who was videotaped. The video was 14 minutes long. On March 3rd, one of the detectives took a statement from the second informant, Chuck Weisinger. I could not find a formal interview report from this interview, only a one-page notebook entry. No officer name is written on it, but there is a question written down. What did Keezer say? He said he shot somebody, a girl, said town, can't remember. Thinks it was Benton, Illinois, unquote. And then the word lie, written with an exclamation point, was written right by that statement. The same day, they interviewed Stephen Allen Graw, who, in addition to sharing roughly the same story, said he saw Josh Keezer with guns. When Graw was asked what kind of guns, he covered all the bases and said, a 45, a 357, a 22, and even saw him with a sawed-off shotgun one time. He described Josh as being light-complected and having thin black hair that was combed straight back. On March 5th, Shivitz, Farrell, and Wyndham interviewed Josh's ex-girlfriend, Amanda Drury. Amanda told him her best friend Christy Nail drove a white car. It was described as a white hatchback with louvers or slats in the back window. Drury told the officers that Josh knew where Christy Nail had kept a hidden key on her car because when cruising one night, they had locked the keys in her car and they needed to retrieve the spare. After that interview, with consent, investigators processed Nail's car, a 1985 Plymouth Duster. A crime lab technician was called, and he used a substance called luminol that causes a fluorescent effect to appear on bodily fluids, but also other types of fluids. The technician determined there were two areas in particular that were, quote, probably body fluids and due to the appearance, probably blood, unquote. Now keep in mind, this test was taking place four months following the murder. The technician then tested a small area of the spots with another chemical, which according to the report, affirmed the idea that there could have been blood in the car. That was on March 5th. On March 8th, Farrell and Wyndham did a Q&A statement with Weisinger. On March 10th, Farrell and Wyndham interviewed Mangus with a question and answer format. On March 11th, Mark Abbott picked out Josh Keezer and Christy Nail's car out of photo lineups. According to the report, Abbott identified Josh, quote, without hesitation, unquote, as the man he saw at the payphone the night of November 8th, 1992. So I moved in with my father and immediately it was tense. He didn't know how to be a father and I didn't know how to be a son to a father. Uh, up until that point, the uh, only contact I really had with him was the, was the occasional summer vacation. You know where I'd be with him for you know a few weeks, but living with him was different, very difficult. We got into literal fistfights. So at that point, Josh went to live with his aunt for a little while up in Kankakee until his mother's boyfriend, 
who was also originally from northern Illinois, could pick Josh up and bring him back to Cape Girardeau. Josh said the plan was to only be in Cape for a week or so and then return to his aunt's house. Josh's mother's boyfriend was supposed to take him back up to Kankakee, but when the boyfriend left to return to northern Illinois, he left without Josh. That's when I became homeless in Cape Girardeau because I didn't live with my mother. My mother, by that time, had moved in with a man that didn't want me around and uh, was very abusive. So I was homeless. I believe I was still 16 when that happened, um, maybe 17. Well, my mother, uh, she had a friend that agreed to take me in initially, but that didn't work. And I had uh, got a couple of jobs. I was working at some fast food restaurants and at SEMO security. I was like, you know, by SEMO security, I mean like the ticket boy and like people would drive into the parking lot and buy tickets. So I had some money. So I, you know, I rented a room from these people, their downstairs basement area. And that didn't end up working. So from there, you know, my mother, I didn't really have anywhere to put my things. So I didn't have a lot, but my mom took in some of my stuff and um, she wanted to have me move in with her, but I couldn't because of this, this man. So I, um, that's when I officially became homeless. That's when, you know, I just, I slept where I could and did what I could. And, I did that for a couple of months. That's when I met Sean Mangus, Charles Weisinger, Steve Graw, Kelly Church, and others. On March 12th, a day later, investigators re-interviewed Stephen Graw and Kelly Church. Graw again told the story of Josh's confession in Stacy Reed's apartment, while Church was more vague. But Church gave investigators quite a bit of ammunition told investigators that Josh had an altercation with the man in Sykeston, who was the father of Amanda Drury's new boyfriend. Church told Shivitz and Wyndham that Josh was in the Latin Kings gang and told them he talked about meeting a girl on Broadway Street in Cape Girardeau that screwed him over and he was going to kill her. He said he didn't know her name but knew she was from Benton. was also charged with an assault. Uh, an incident in, in, in Scott County. Um, that allegedly happened on Christmas Eve uh, in Scott County. And some people said that was me. You know, I, that one's, so I, I was not there on Christmas Eve. I was not. I they, they said that I went to Amanda Drury's boy's house and threatened her boyfriend's father with a gun. The boyfriend's father later testified in open court, that's not him, and they dropped the case. They had all this smoke, and there was no fire. I, I didn't do any of it. It's extremely difficult to prove to people your innocence when they compile so much manure yeah. Against, you. and it was that's what it was. It was manure. Now, 
um, there was a, a point where I had went to um, Drury's um, boyfriend's um, house, but I, there was no gun pulled, and it was not on Christmas Eve. So now I don't know if it happened with someone else. I don't know if someone else went to that house and pulled a gun on Christmas Eve. It's none of my business. I don't know. Yeah. But I know it wasn't me. They also interviewed a man named Randy Wilson. One of the informants had originally said that Wilson was also in the bedroom at the time of the confession. But he said the last time he saw Josh was in early November 1992 at Stacy Reed's house on Spanish Street, which was also false. So at that point, you've got basically four jailhouse informants with little credibility, somewhat conflicting stories, telling investigators that Josh, in one way or another, confessed to killing a girl in Benton. Investigators found out that Josh Keezer's ex-girlfriend drove a white car and lived a mile from the murder scene. They told a story about how Josh had threatened or assaulted the father of Amanda Drury's new boyfriend, and preliminary field tests suggested the presence of blood in the car. Where Charles Weisinger, Sean Mangus, and Steve Graw all approached, and some, some other man that we've never been able to track him down, a guy named Isaac Johnson, um, they all supposedly, or they all did, go to Morley Swingle's office, the, 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 the officers, they were all charged with crimes under Morley Swingle's um, um, authority in Cape Girada. And they then went to them and cut deals with Bill Farrell. In order for those deals to have been cut with a sheriff outside of Cape County, the county they were charged in, they had to have an agreement with Morley Swingle. Yeah, and those were some, so, I know, and, and it ended up being some pretty sweet deals. Um, sweet deals. They were all looking at major felonies and major sentences. They were looking at life. One was looking at a life sentence. The other one was looking at 30 years. Another one at 15, I believe. And they all, they all, practical purposes got nothing. Now, let's say, let, let's bring this up just so it, it gets brought up. Both at, before I was taken to trial, both. Sean Mangus and Charles Weisinger recanted. Before the trial, Sean Mangus then recanted his recantation. So by the time I get to trial, of the three witnesses they were using, of the three statements and testimonials they were using at my trial to claim that I had confessed at this party, two of them had history of recantation all three of them had holes in their statements. One of them claimed that the murder happened in Benton, Illinois, when the murder was Benton, Missouri. The date that they all claimed that I had made this confession, an investigation of that date years later proved that Stacy Reed, the place that I had supposedly confessed, didn't even live in the location they had claimed that I confessed. And yet Morley Swingle, celebrated prosecutor of Missouri, I believe he's an accomplished and respected author now, if I'm correct. He worked with these people. And he has gone unscathed. 
I want to review a few things about the white car that Mark Abbott said he saw at the payphone the night of the murder. In earlier interviews, Abbott described the white car to investigators as possibly a Saab, a Mercury Mercur, a Mercury Sable, or maybe a Ford Escort. And if we're in the business of talking about a suspect having a friend who has a white car, let's not forget that Lyle Day's friend had a white Ford Escort. Regardless, early in the investigation, Mark said it was a four-door with a spoiler and a high rear chrome bumper. Unfortunately for Josh, that information was only contained in Shivitz's notes, which, of course, were not handed over to the defense. Now, Christy Nail's car, remember, Christy Nail is the best friend of Josh Keezer's ex-girlfriend. Her car was a two-door Dodge Duster with louvers or horizontal slats over the back window. Mark had never mentioned the louvers until after identifying the car. Somehow Mark was able to identify the right man and the right car to investigators when he was shown the photo lineups. He either had to get lucky or he was given information before the identification took place. Because as we know, Josh Keezer was not in Missouri, so obviously he was not driving that car. In 15 days, from March 1 to March 16th, Farrell, Shivitz, and Wyndham assembled the case against Josh Keezer. Four snitches, Mark Abbott, a white car that belonged to Josh Keezer's ex-girlfriend's best friend. They had no weapon, no motive, and no physical evidence. I also find the interviewing methods a bit sketchy. Wyndham's preference at the beginning was to record those interviews with the informants. That strategy did not last long, however. Farrell insisted on this written statement Q&A format in which the officers wrote the questions and the answers and it would be signed by the witness. Wyndham testified later, quote, It was something they, meaning the Scott County Sheriff's Department, wanted to do. I don't know if we would actually write the question down and then have them answer and then write down the question because that's the way the sheriff wanted to do it. It was extremely different, I can tell you that. I think such a method would allow for the statements to exclude parts of the interview that the interviewees knew were inconsistent. I mean everything, and I do mean everything, about the investigation into Josh Keezer as well as the trial is suspicious. Josh Keezer was in Kankakee. They needed to bring Josh back to Missouri for questioning. To do that, they filed a warrant to the governor of Illinois for an assault charge on Josh for his altercation with Randy Eskew's father in Sykeston one night, supposedly on Christmas Eve. Again, I want to reiterate that Wyndham was kept out of the loop of information. Reports were not made available to him. He asked on more than one occasion to see the materials and to get to talk to some of the other deputies who worked the case early on. But that request went nowhere. He didn't get to see the Wooten report, or who knows how many other reports that would have been helpful to his investigation. I'm going to read from a deposition transcript from 2008 when Josh was presenting his case for exoneration. Trooper Wyndham was asked about the plan when he was sent up to Kankakee to pick up Josh Keezer. This is what he said, quote, It started when Keezer's information came up and my idea was that we need to go talk to him and I'd like to polygraph him to eliminate him from knowledge of what he may have seen or what he knows or what his involvement is. And I wanted to take Sergeant Overby with me so we could get a polygraph up there. He could monitor the polygraph and see what was going on so they could both confer on this polygraph. The sheriff says, rather than do that, I've got a case in Sykeston on an assault case. 
I don't know what that was, but he said, if I can get a warrant, we can extradite him back here and we can go ahead and do the polygraph of him. Okay, so he wanted to do it that way, so he did. He gets a warrant, he says, then he makes contact with him to get extradition or what have you, and at that point, I think I even ask, can I go? Can I go? Because I'd like to interview him on the way back up and get him prepared for this polygraph, so I could go, yeah. So I drive up there thinking we'll be sitting at Sykeston waiting to do the polygraph, I'm going to bring him back, tell him that you're under arrest for the Sykeston warrant. Couldn't explain anything to him because I don't know anything about it. Just say that you have this warrant in Sykeston, we're going to take you back to Sykeston, we're going to do an interview, get a polygraph, eliminate this lawless thing, or put you in this thing. We want to see what you've got to say. And before I'd even got started on the way back, Hinton got a call from the sheriff that we're not going to do that. We're going to bring him straight to the sheriff's office. And I was upset. So three things happened, or were about to happen there. Josh was issued a warrant for the alleged assault with the father of Amanda Drury's boyfriend, which, by the way, Wyndham was very well aware of. There were many questions asked about that. It's just that Wyndham didn't know that that's the assault that they were talking about. Secondly, Josh was not being brought back for an interview and a polygraph. And thirdly, Josh would be served with an indictment for Michelle's murder without Wyndham's knowledge. He was caught completely off guard. In fact, he didn't think they had a strong enough case yet for charges. Kieser hadn't even been interviewed. All of this was Bill Farrell's doing. We wanted to take just a minute here to remind you, if you're not already a subscriber, that you can access all sorts of bonus materials on this case by going to thelawlessfiles.com. This podcast you're hearing is available free to the public because we felt it was important to get the word out but it's taken years of research to get to this point. Thousands of hours, thousands of dollars. So we're asking you, if you think this story is important, go support us by subscribing to our website. It will help keep us going. Before we return to the episode, I'd like to say that all this work is done in memory of Michelle Lawless, who lost her life and her voice on November 8, 1992. Our work is dedicated to the many abused women who are connected to the characters in this story and who shared their experiences with us. You won't hear all their names, but we honor them for their courage, and we thank them for their trust. Okay, so the day of the arrest, that's March 15th, 1993. I was living with my father again, and I was working at Kmart. Um, that day, oh, well, side note, <laughs> my cousin, I, so part of my story is that I was working at Kmart and I got off at Kmart and a, my coworker and I went to Wendy's, no, no Burger King, went to Burger King and got a Whopper and fries, you know, and drink and then went, took me home. Right. And we chilled in his car and we ate the Whopper and fries and he had to go back to work. I went back in my father's house and being a bottomless pit of hunger as a child, went then went in and raided my father's um, lunch meats. This was midday, 12, 12.30, 1 o'clock. There was a knock at my father's uh, front door. Now, back then, my father sold used cars out of his front yard. When he was at work, he worked at a um, mechanic shop as a detailer. And while he was at work, Either myself or his living girlfriend, Kay at the time, would, um, you know, kind of 
explain the vehicle to someone and then take down their information. And so that we can then, you know, give it to my father and my father can come home, call them, and then, you know, he can potentially make a sale. So when I got the knock on the front door, or when we did, when I got up to uh, open the door and they said, is Mr. Keyser home? I said, well, that's my father. And I assumed that they wanted to talk about one of the cars. So I said, you know, give me a minute. And I went and put my shoes on and my coat, the black leather jacket. And I stepped outside the threshold of the door. I got one foot out. And they grabbed me, put me in an arm bar, threw me up against the car, informed me that they were they were police officers. They were um, they were plain clothes, and told me I was being arrested. I I panicked. I I yelled for Kay. She came outside, um, irate, wanting to know what was going on. They told me that, you know, um, I can, you know, you know, call my dad when I got to the jail. I called my dad. My dad wouldn't know what was going on. Apparently, I was being arrested for the assault. That's what I was told, that I was never at. And the, the, um, the Christmas Eve event. The incident, uh, it really took us all off guard. None of us saw it coming. None of us. So my dad said, okay, boy, give me, my dad, he didn't have a lot of money. So I was like, okay, boy, give me, you're gonna have to be in there for a couple of days. Give me some time and I'll get, I'll get the bail money. Right. Mm -hmm. So they set up the, um, they set up the, uh, the hearing, the bail hearing. And my dad attends and the judge is there. While I'm standing in front of the judge and he's preparing to give me a bail, um, small bail, he got a phone call in the courtroom and was informed that he wasn't allowed to release me, that I had a Missouri governor's warrant placed against me. And the judge responded with um, something along the lines of who puts a kid on a governor's warrant for an assault. It didn't make any sense to him. He apologized to me. My dad sat there shell-shocked because he thought he was going home with his boy. His plan was to bail me out and then drive me to Missouri and figure it out. We weren't gonna, we weren't gonna just get me out and not tend to it, you know, so we had planned to get me out and then we were going to drive immediately to Missouri and figure this out. But the judge was told he can't let me go. So he was confused, but he had to do what he had to do and put me back in jail. A few weeks later, I, I wasn't yet charged with murder. So no one there knew about this. A few weeks later, I was transported um, some officers, highway patrolmen and a Scott County officer drove to Kankakee. They picked me up. 
and uh, transported me back. And hours into the ride, uh, they began to ask me questions about a murder. Now, up until that point, they had been, you know, playing the the good cop role with me, and I and uh, because I had I had no idea what was going on, no clue. I knew I was innocent of this assault accusation. I hadn't assaulted anyone with my hands or the weapon or anything in in, in Missouri, especially um, Scott County, Missouri. Um, so I. I didn't know anything about anything. I was just this kid who had just turned 18. This is happening on March 15th. I had just turned 18 on February 16th. So I didn't know. And they kept asking me questions. I had no clue that they the whole time had planned to turn those questions into a murder investigation. This whole time I'm talking to them like whatever, you know, nah, man. You know, and he, me, things, they bring up the murder. They note, because this, this, this part did happen. They note that the moment they brought up the murder, I became quiet. Because it was in that moment that something, an alarm went off on the inside. Something wasn't right. As ignorant as I was at the time, as unknowing as I was at the time, I knew something was not right. So I became quiet. They finished the drive. They walked me in. They got me cuffed in the front. They walked me into the Scott County Sheriff's office. They walked me back into Bill Farrell's office. The chair that I'm sitting at in front of Bill Farrell's desk is in front, is directly near the door to the side of the door that we walked in. In the back of the room to the side of Bill Farrell's desk, there's a small couch. And there was a woman sitting there. I later learned that was Brenda Shivitz. One of the officers that had transferred me was sitting there as well. Bill Farrell was behind his desk. Bill Farrell asked me about the trip. Did it go well? Did I need anything? I said, I, I said I didn't need anything and a change as monstrous as Jekyll and Hyde he came across the desk and yelled at me and accused me of killing his little girl he literally physically came across the desk And in that moment, I remember crying because I knew they were trying to send me to prison for the rest of my life. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. Thank you for listening to The Lawless Files, a production of Leadhound Publishing, LLC. The Lawless Files is hosted and edited by Bob Miller and co-produced by Bob Miller and me, Tyler Grafe. We'd like to thank Jacob Wiegand, Jeff Long, Rachel Long, Jesse Dew, Kara Kaminsky, Chuck Kaminsky, Allison Miller, Shawnee Graves, Laura Ritter, Bobby Clubs, MJ DeGraff, 
Ben Matthews, and Mason Dukacek, who helped voice the court transcripts. Again, please go to thewallacefiles.com and subscribe. In this episode, you're hearing quite a bit from Josh Kieser. I've known Josh Kieser for many years now, and I've had many conversations with him. For this podcast, we did an interview that lasted well over three hours. We couldn't use all of that interview for the podcast, but you can go listen to full segments of that interview on the website, thelawlessfiles.com. We appreciate you listening. We thank you for subscribing. And if you can't subscribe, you can help the cause by sharing this podcast with your friends. You can leave us a good review, or you can join our Facebook group. Thank you for whatever support you can provide. Next time on The Lawless Files. When I was interviewed by the police, it seemed like they, namely Brenda Shivitz and Bill Farrell, just wanted me to say that Josh Keezer killed Michelle. I was enticed by them by the possibility of receiving the $10,000 reward.